Doc Ryan, Expedition 44. If you've been watching the news or paying attention to feeds lately, you probably noticed that there's a stir going around the nation on Roe versus Wade and the Supreme Court leak. Um, earlier this year, I published a book. This is This is the Way, Redefining a Biblical Covenant Lifestyle. And buried in here in chapter 10 is a section on different views of hell, and this is really an eye-opener to a lot of different people that have never considered anything other than the traditional uh, ECT view. And in that chapter, I, just a few paragraphs, I mention a god or type of sacrifice called Molech. And it was just a real small reference to the chapter. I've got some other videos that have kind of touched on it or, or mentioned it. And in the last week, I've gotten several questions asking, do I think there's a connection between Molech and abortion? And the answer is yes, there's definitely a biblical connection there. So first, let me kind of explain to you what Molech is. I'll start with we don't actually know. The, the biblical text and the extra, uh, extra biblical text kind of leave it a little bit out there. It's either the name of the God that was associated with worship of the Canaanites that Israel struggled with, Baal was connected to that, or it's the type of specific sacrifice itself, which is known as sacrificing babies. And so you kind of see it in print different ways. And again, because there's Canaanite Ugaritic language barriers and Hebrew can be, especially ancient Hebrew can be in, uh, translated a couple different ways. It's not totally clear, but I'm just going to refer to it as the God Molech because I think that makes the most interpretive sense. So first I need to start out by saying when you read the ancient Old Testament, you get kind of a barbaric understanding of people in the Bible and that's just cultures for you. They were kind of barbaric in Old Testament times. And when you read these stories of Molech sacrifice, Molech worship, it's the same thing. You're reading about a, a hugely barbaric culture. And so it's mentioned in the Bible about 10 times. I'm just going to read a couple of them, kind of the main passages. This is Leviticus 20. It says, any Israelite or any foreigner residing in Israel who sacrifices any of his children to Molech is to be put to death. The members of the community are to stone him. The next one is Jeremiah 32. It says they built high places for Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Molech, though I never commanded, nor did I enter my mind that they shall do such a detestable thing and so make Judah sin. So from those verses alone, we get a couple different things going on. This was close to home. It was something that the Israelite people were getting pulled into. It was child sacrifice, daughters, sons, things like that. It's telling that it says sons because throughout the Old Testament culture, daughters were kind of regularly done away with. They just weren't, weren't looked upon. And in China, it's a, they still do that. It's a very lar low percentage. If you look at China in the last 2,000 years, such a low percentage of women that have actually survived because of those fatality regimes that have decimated the women in, over the population stream. In the Old Testament, it there was a similar picture. And although it sounds totally crazy that they would be sacrificing these babies, 
in their culture, maybe today we're not that far away from it. In fact, some historians have kind of looked at, you know, that, that sacrifice and said, you know, maybe it was even like lighter or different than what we think in terms of like incinerators or something like that, that as soon as the baby was born or maybe even a premature, you know, childbearing or something like that, or partial abortion has been suggested and then throwing them into the incinerators. All of this sounds bad. All of it sounds hideous. And there's been an age old question for people interested in theology and the Bible that are kind of trying to learn where it fits into their life called the problem of evil. And it, it really states that if God is powerful enough and he desires that evil shouldn't be in the world, then why does he let it happen? Why doesn't he put a stop to it? Why doesn't he allow all these atrocities? And I'm going to introduce to you a story where he does kind of put an end to it. And so if we go back to this worship, this Molech worship in the time of the Israelites and Canaanites, we actually go back before we even read of Canaan. We go back to the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19, it, it says that, you know, God was going to completely destroy it. And so we get this idea of decimation and we have that story of turning to salt and all that and you can do with what you will. But then several hundred years later, it's going to seem like that same evil culture is still there. Like it wasn't totally snuffed out or it rose again and maybe there's a Genesis 6 problem still going on or something like that. But it happened again and it roots its head in the land of Canaan. And so Deuteronomy 9, we get this idea that God just says, Israel, I want you to come in and completely get rid of it. Now, this is another thing that sometimes when people read in the Bible, it can sound a little crazy, a little barbaric. Would God actually do that? But you have to keep in mind a couple things. One, the land was promised to Abraham. This was the chosen land. Now, it doesn't mean that God is just going to Oh, I'm sorry you decided to move to this chosen land. Now you're going to be decimated. There's more to the story going on than that. So the story is that this is Sodom and Gomorrah. They come back in Canaan and they're, they're an evil people. They were utterly wicked. They were detestable. And so God is kind of killing two birds with one stone. He's going to deliver the promised land, but he's also going to decimate this. He was going to get rid of the most evil thing and turn it to good. And I want you to think about that for a second because that's the overarching message of the entire Bible, that he's going to take things that are wrecked, take things that are destroyed, take things that the world has completely decimated, the most evil we can think of or understand, and he's going to turn those things, this is contronym thinking in the Bible, he's going to use these extreme examples of the horrible and through him, he's going to refine and purify and turn those into the biggest pictures of joy, the greatest stories of triumphant hope and healing and things like that. So what is ugly needs to be refined by the Lord. And he uses us, his people, as part of the way that he's going to do this. Now, there's something kind of crazy going on here, and I'm just going to touch on this for a second. I've had other videos allude to it, and again, the book that I just came out kind of gets into a little bit of this thinking before. But did you ever notice in the Old Testament that there's hardly any evangelism? Now, even in the scriptures I just read, it opened the door that there, there were other people. And it said that in the first scripture I read, that there were others that were 
going to be under the same law that Israel's under, but it doesn't seem like there's this major evangelistic campaign like we think of as the Great Commission or evangelism today. And part of that is simply just because it's the Old Testament. And so some people don't like this, but when you get into the Apostles' Creed, you kind of get this idea that maybe Jesus, you know, went back and preached for the three days to Hades while he was in the grave or something like that. And there's other scriptures in Jude and First Peter and stuff that might make you also think that way. But there seems to be kind of an idea that God wasn't too interested in necessarily evangelizing everybody else. In war, they would, you know, make sacrifices, altars, and they would offer up their fallen enemy to the Lord, sort of, as a sacrifice. So there's something going on there. I, I'm not going to be able to touch this much, but I'm, I'm just going to make some allusions. And there you go. Are you talking universal reconciliation? Are you talking like, what, 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 where are you going? And I just want to leave it with you that... I'm hopeful to any of those things. I believe in a great God of grace. And although we don't necessarily have all the cards, all the answers in our book, I do know that God just loved the people of the Old Testament. And even though sometimes we see kind of this, you know, overtaking of people like in Canaan, he still loved those people. I mean, there was still a plan there. So let that work on you for a second. But the major plan was that his people, Israel, were supposed to be a kingdom of priests that would reclaim all that was broken. And to fully understand this, you kind of have to, in my opinion, take on a little bit of a Deuteronomy 32 worldview to understand what was lost and how it was lost. We've got a short video and a long video of that. I'll tag it. I also get more into these discussions in the expedition44.com um, article on this. So if you want to read the article, there's a little bit more into that. But the main thing is, Israel failed. Israel was supposed to go reclaim the nations for the Lord and they failed and they went into exile. Like they really, they're what I call the archetype, the extreme example of failure in the Bible. And so then we get Jesus and the plan through new covenant thinking is that you and I are supposed to do the same thing. We're supposed to go reclaim what was lost, bring beauty from ashes, Take what, what has been decimated, broken, and bring healing through Jesus in it. So now let's get back to Molech. If you're following all this, if you're connecting the dots, then you're going to see that the ugliest, most horrific thing in the, the early Old Testament, maybe all of the Old Testament, the archetype of evil, the major example of, of bad things, the problem of evil, is going to be the Canaanite nation. And you get pictures of a lot of horrible things that they did, but the number one overarching thing is because they sacrificed babies. They killed babies for hundreds of years, and God finally says, I'm not putting up with it anymore. This is the day of judgment. We're done. And so now people today go, why doesn't God ever put an end to it? And then we have this picture of when God just wipes them out. And then the same people usually come back and say, gosh, why, why is God so violent in the Bible? Why did he wipe out all those people? And well, that's, you can't have it both ways. You have to reconcile. But that's where I was kind of going with there's more to this through God's eyes than I think we get in humanity. And that's where I just be would say be open to connecting some of those dots too. So my question is, it took about three to 400 years of sacrificing babies before God just finally said, I'm just done with it. I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to wipe, wipe these people out. What about America? 
it seems like America is pretty much guilty of the same thing. Now, granted, we've only been doing this since the 1970s. It's not really that long. We're talking three or four decades compared to three or four centuries. So perhaps they were way worse than we, we are, but I'm not convinced. So here's a couple of things we don't really have a handle on. One, the, the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, it uses a lot of figurative language. So when it says that Israel is to wipe out these people or annihilate them or something like that, we don't really know exactly what that means. In fact, we do this a lot in our language today. So I say, um, my youngest, I have an 11-year-old named Reed, and he's a soccer player. And I said, Reed is going to completely annihilate the other team. They beat him 10 to nothing. Well, if I just say that, I think everybody in my context knows what that means. But if they were to read it later and they have this idea that we were, you know, killing all these babies, how might they interpret that? If they read a similar story, they went, oh my goodness, this 11-year-old went in and in a simple soccer game, took out a sword and cut off all the heads of the 11-year-olds and paraded them around town. And that just sounds horrible. Yet that kind of sounds like fake news today too, you know. But my point is, my point is this, is that that's actually the opposite of what reality was. My, my son Reed is the most kind, tender-hearted, gracious, merciful little boy you've ever met. So what it sounds like when I say total annihilation is exactly the opposite of the way Reed's heart really was in this soccer game. When in reality, he's picking up the fallen off the field and dusting them off and shaking hands and sharing his water bottle and giving them hugs and things like that. That might be a better picture of the figurative language for what's really going on in the eyes of the Lord. I'm pretty convinced that oftentimes when we're reading the pages of the scripture, we don't exhibit enough grace. We don't really want to see things through the eyes of the love, grace, and mercy that God would. And so the story is about how we're invited to come into intimate relationship with God and to bring others into that same kind of obedience and, and allegiance that we have for him. This is the uh, beauty from ashes transformation that he longs for everybody to have in this deep, intimate relationship with him. So in a nutshell, that's Molech. That's the God, the type of sacrifice to babies. We get this picture in Canaan that this is the archetype of evil and that God says, I want to get rid of it. Israel fails. It's still rampant today. And a lot of people would say this is the problem, is that those that were supposed to be faithful to the calling of the Lord to get rid of it, to bring transformation to the lost world, never did that. And now in New Covenant, this is our primary calling. This is what we're supposed to be doing. What else does the Bible say that could tie into this abortion topic? So the next thing is, I'm going to stick with the Old Testament here. In Exodus 21, you get this kind of picture of law, that if two people are fighting and kind of bump in or hit a pregnant woman, and she gives birth prematurely, but there's no injury, then what happens? It looks like it's just like, kind of a fine in court settlement, something like that. But if there is injury, then we get this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth language. And it looks like if the baby's dead, then a life for a life. And so the idea in Exodus through the Old Testament law was this was taken extremely seriously, that, that life was important and that if one was lost, one needed to be submitted to it. And as the Old Testament laws aren't always followed to a T. There is some room left for things like this. In general, that was the 
understanding that if you committed the law, that would be the expectation of what would happen. Later on in the New Testament, in Luke 1, we kind of get this idea of Elizabeth and Mary. And there's a couple, there's a couple telling things going on here. The baby leaps in her womb. And the word used in Greek for womb and baby here are, are uh, brothos. And when you, when you see this, it's the same word used to describe children out of the womb in Luke 18. And so there's no differentiation between a baby in the womb and children out running and playing. There's also another thing that is interesting that the scripture does right away and that, that when they're talking about this baby and Mary being with child, she's, she's referred to as a mother. So that's kind of just the idea that, that, that they consider the baby life like any other baby. The terms are, are synonymous. So it seems under normal methods of interpretation to interpret babies in the womb as the same as babies anywhere else. Now, later in traditional Judaism, there there is, I'm just trying to be unbiased, totally open to, to other arguments. What else could it be? I'm always looking for truth. And so later when you get to rabbinical writing, you might see a little bit of this kind of sway. So uh, Yevimot 69b, when you read it, it kind of asserts that there's like a 40-day fetus period, as, as if there's like during this gestation time that it might not be considered a child. Now, most of these writings are going to be quite a bit after the time of Christ, but they kind of show you where the rabbinical track, you know, kept going. But the other problem with this is that this is going to represent the counterculture of Jesus. I've got my backward kingdom shirt on today to make this point. But by the time we get all these rabbinical writings, these are actually the people that put Jesus on the cross. And you need to kind of keep that in mind. This was the religious people that Jesus actually had more of a problem with than anything else. And that's where these writings are coming with. So when this early Judaism notion of, you know, first century, it was really tied in with a lot of hypocrisy and, you know, things like that, that Jesus wasn't about. So I would be careful to look at what was happening in rabbinical thinking to say this. So I don't want to just automatically throw that under the bus. But when you look at, at that, it's, it kind of doesn't fit in. Now, there is another thing going on in early rabbinical source. And when you look at Genesis 9-6, it prohibits the shedding. And I'm going to use the, the English phrase, blood of a man within a man. Blood of a man within a man. And that's often been used to kind of signify things that are happening in the womb. And that sounds funny because we know men can't have children, so it helps to know a little bit of Hebrew. So when you look, see the word, and I, a lot of videos I made this point, that ha-adam, it's, it's, it's kind of the term for mankind in Hebrew. If they were going to talk about me, the, the man, the husband-ish, or something like that, would probably be used instead. There are better terms to denote that. So it's kind of this humankind role, and although it is in the masculine, it's more similar to like the way we'd use the pronoun he in English. So it's masculine, but it can have a much larger meaning. It can mean women too. So, so not to get into all of that, but generically speaking, it's just kind of talking about blood of a man within a man. And when you, when you take that, you follow all of, of that within rabbinical tract or thinking, almost every source refers to it as a fetus. Uh, you would be hard-pressed. In fact, if there are any, I don't know of them, 
of anything in a rabbinical writing that would not take that as a fetus. So again, it's just one more place starting in the early chapters of Genesis that the scripture seems to support a baby in the womb living, growing, and it's synonymous in terms that are going to be used later in the Bible talking about normal children and people. Now there's another thing going on here. It doesn't matter if you're talking uh, Judaism. Some people, uh, most of my most of my watchers, listeners are traditional Christians. And so when I talk about Judaism, that doesn't really mean much to them. But regardless of whether you're into Judaism or Christianity and you're watching this, Everybody in both camps believe that your body isn't necessarily your own, that it's been completely given to God. And so in an Old Testament sense, there's actually laws that would talk about how your body wasn't yours and not to defile it. It kind of gets into suicide, even tattoos, things like that, that that's God's. And in the New Testament, we know that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we're not to defile it in any way um, that, that talking about garbage in, garbage out, all that kind of stuff. Now, people air on that all the time and that's again another video there's a lot of little squirrel videos coming off of this one maybe i'll get some of them maybe i won't but god retains the right to give and to take human life that's for god and god alone and so do we have the right to give and take life that that's only the authority left to god when humankind attempts to take on this role they're actually attempting to kind of take god's place and there's only room for one Lord in Scripture. Now, with this conversation, this is going to kind of lead into contraception because there's some ties there. I'm not going to get into that in the video, but on Expedition44.com, on the linked article, you can read some of that there. So, in conclusion, I want to leave you with a couple things. I want to think about where do we go from here? What's the next step? Well, everyone's a sinner. Some, I might say, are worse than others. That's a Calvinistic uh, doctrine of the total depravity issue we can talk about later. But all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We can agree on that. We can also agree that this is sanctification, that we're all on a journey of total transformation to be more like Jesus each and every day. And that when we screw up, God's arms, a prodigal son story, are always open and outstretched to invite us back to ultimately be healed in him. So if you have poor decisions, you need to reconcile those with the Lord. God's already forgiven you, but sometimes there's continued work that needs to be done for healing for everybody involved, and sometimes that might even take time, although I'm a firm believer to don't let the sun go down, to get to it right when you know these things are happening. Oftentimes in my life, it's just miscommunication. I truly believe God calls us to work through that. Unfortunately, the other thing is that when we approach people on the other side of the fence here, people that are probably broken and hurting and need more than anything to be healed by Jesus, I see a lot of Christians doing it in ways that I don't think Jesus would have done. So many Christians forget what love looks like when it came from Jesus. They represent hate, hostility, animosity. They don't represent the love of Jesus. And Jesus makes it clear that judgment and life in the kingdom are antithetical to one another, that they don't exist together. Jesus came to free us of judgment and to restore our capacity to love the way that God loves. I truly believe that we can change the culture. 
that we can be the advocates that brings the Lord to the broken, to the hurting, to the lost, that we can be the ambassadors that bring life, that we can be the agents of healing. And do you know what the best part of this is? You are not alone. Together, we are a royal nation, a kingdom set apart, called in Jesus to one accord, to bring life to ourselves, to our families, to the world. We are the refining fire, working through the chaos to bring order, restoration, unity, peace, love, grace, and mercy, modeling what Jesus has given and done to us. Let's be the light and share the love. May God bless you.